Hi, and welcome to this week's LGBT Wellness Podcast. Each week, LGBT HealthLink, a program of Centerlink, brings you a roundup of some of the biggest LGBTQ wellness stories from the past week. Get ready to listen and learn lots. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first roundup of 2021. Before we get to our regular content, we were lucky enough to be able to sit down with Dr. Rodrigo Aguayo Romero, whose op-ed in the American Journal of Public Health is our first story of the week. This article is all about intersectionality and how to properly include it in research, which is something that we often talk about here on the podcast. Rodrigo, why was it important for you to write about this topic? Yes, so, um, well, the article was published because um, intersectionality is an analytic framework that keeps uh, growing and, and many people are interested in applying it to their work and um, or to figure out ways of like uh, under, utilizing it in different ways. Uh, but throughout that process and the way that it was initially intended to be used has not been attended to. Um, so I brought it just kind of to, as kind of a, as a reminder, as we, especially 2020 has shown in many ways the disparities, the, the racial disparities um, in terms of the rates of COVID and, you know, um, police brutality and all of that. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good time to remind people if they're interested in using intersectionality of what, what it was intended for. So initially, it's, it's rooted on, on black feminism. And it was intended not only to explore the intersection of social identities, but to explore the systems of oppression and privilege. So um, social identities are only as important as they, they are representing the systems uh, or the social processes itself. Uh, because by itself, a social identity doesn't really tell you much. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to write this piece was to bring that back um, and, and to, to always to, to bring it back to where, where it initiated and as a way, as we move forward, as it's getting more interest in quantitative uh, research, since it has been mainly utilizing qualitative research. So as we move forward and as we are finding different ways to, to apply it uh, quantitatively, to remember the, the intended development. And it's also a, a framework that was not uh, developed for research, you know, but it has always had the social justice piece that sometimes gets forgotten as it reaches uh, research. Yeah, and you actually, um, you mentioned in the article you know, kind of a practical uh, implication that this had for a study that you that you did regarding HIV uh, testing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so in, in this study, uh, focusing on transgender women of color and looking at HIV testing in the, in the prior, previous year and, and not getting tested, um, I wanted to look, especially when we think about like a population of, of transgender people, we think as uh, trans misogyny or transphobia as the main social process of discrimination that they experience, but but people belong to people have multiple identities, and, and in this case, when I focus on transgender women of color, uh, race also plays a key role. But sometimes most of our research focuses only on one piece, whether it's racism or whether it's uh, transphobia, or whether it's homophobia, and we're using intersectionality in this study. What was helpful to see is that if we only looked 
if we had only looked at transphobia using that single approach, single access approach as we usually do, um, we would not have seen some of the nuances that came up when we focused on, on transmisogyny, racism, and classism. In this study, what, what came up was that those who only reported experiences of racism were the ones that were more likely to not have got, got it tested for HIV um, ever. And it, it turned out that those who had intersectional discrimination, meaning that they experienced uh, transmisogyny, racism, and classism, were the ones that were more likely to get tested. So we usually, when we think of like, oh, more, more experience of discrimination or intersectional discrimination probably means worse health outcomes. And in this case, it was quite the opposite. Like it was associated mm -hmm. with the protective, the protective behavior of getting tested. Um, so the, the applicability of using intersectionality in this case is that we get to see that like, it's not always related to worse health outcomes. In, in some cases, related to protective factors. Uh, but to focus on more than one aspect, social process or, 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 or type of discrimination, then can, we can see that some other processes might be more related to the negative outcome that we might be looking at. Like in this case, HIV testing, not getting tested for HIV was related to only experiences of discrimination. Yeah, definitely counterintuitive that, you know, if you're facing multiple forms of discrimination, you're, you know, you're more likely to to take a step like getting tested. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, that could be totally lost if, if researchers aren't kind of asking the right questions and, and looking, um, you know, more, more widely at these issues. Um, and finally, tell us a little bit, you know, a lot of folks who are listening may conduct research themselves or may work with researchers in some capacity, um, or may, you know, just like to, to, be caught up on on research and kind of know what's what's out there in the field for LGBT health. So what are some kind of like top line practical considerations that folks should take to make sure that intersectionality is is being um, included properly uh, in LGBT health research? Yeah, so for LGBT health research, usually for LGBT health research, we focus if we're looking at social processes, we focus on um, on homophobia or transphobia or transmisogyny. But my, my suggestion will be to also explore these other systems of oppression that might be impacting the population. One of the things, they, I mean, the most obvious one being racism, as we know that at the intersection of race and, and gender identity or sexual orientation, we see more health disparities, but some not so obvious will be classism. We usually focus on, we looked at income of looking at the process itself, it's important as well. Um, and another one for LGBT health in, in particular, another one that we don't often talk about is ableism. We have a lot of people in the community uh, living with, with disabilities and that often that piece of their experience is not often uh, explored. And particularly when we talk about health research, uh, there's many experiences of discrimination that we're seeing that are related to people having physical disabilities or mental disabilities. Uh, on top of like all the, all the other experiences related to their gender and sexual orientation. Uh, but another thing to keep in being um, uh, faithful to intersectionality is this piece of centering margin, historically marginalized people from beginning to end, not only as research participants, but being involved as part of the research team as well from implementation, from the design to uh, the, the analysis and dissemination of the findings. Um, whether that means involving as a research assistant or supporting um, uh, uh, having a community advisory board, but like having 
having it not only be a research research participant itself, but the community be part of the research in every step of the way. Yeah, and I, I think it can be painfully obvious sometimes when that isn't the case. <laughs> and, uh, right. yeah. you know, either either re personally myself, either reading studies or, um, you know, getting asked to help with studies where there is not that representation of the people who are actually being studied uh, can be very obvious in some of the language that's used and just the approach that's taken. So, um, you know, I think it's coming at it from a social justice perspective, as well as, you know, the quality of the research, uh, it's really important that those steps are taken. So thank you so much for, for sharing um, about your work. That's really exciting to see that published. And um, as always to our listeners, if you want to check out this article yourself, you can go to blog.lgbthealthlink.org where we have the link to the article. Thanks, Rodrigo. Now let's go to our second story of the week. LGBT folks face financial and health challenges. Movement Advancement Project published a new report that found that 66% of LGBT households had experienced significant financial problems during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's compared to 44% of non-LGBT households. Additionally, 38% of LGBT households reported being unable to get medical care or delaying care during the pandemic, and that was about double the number of non-LGBT households that said the same. Next up study could change blood donation rules. NBC News reported that the FDA has begun a new pilot study that could result in lifting the restrictions on donating blood that currently target queer men, which advocates say are discriminatory. The study will recruit 2,000 gay and bisexual men to see if there are better ways to screen for HIV risk besides simply disqualifying those who recently had a same-sex partner. And our next story, LGB veterans at risk. Helier reported on a new study finding that sexual minority veterans were at higher risk of suicide mortality than were their heterosexual peers. The rate among sexual minority veterans was more than double that of veterans generally, and suicide marked the fifth leading cause of death among LGB veterans, which is really concerning and shocking. While many studies look at suicide risk, we have far fewer that actually look at mortality due to limited data, which makes this study all the more important. Next up, obesity and disordered eating among youth. Researchers led by Natasha Shve examined obesity and disordered eating among youths aged 9 to 10 years old whose identity was definitely or maybe LGBT. They found that these youth faced 1.64 times the risk of obesity compared to their peers, as well as 3.49 times the risk for various levels of binge eating disorders. Obviously, identities are still evolving at this age, which makes it a little bit harder to measure, and that's why you know we kind of use the language, either they identified as LGBT or said maybe they were LGBT, but it's really important because we have so few studies that are looking at this age group. The vast majority of this type of research looks at adolescents and adults. And finally for this week, gay circuit parties slammed. The Bay Area Reporter and the LA Blade reported on massive gay circuit parties held for New Year's Eve in Mexico by U.S. organizers. 
The organizers claimed that public health guidelines were going to be followed, but then uh, videos that were leaked, they, they asked people not to take videos or photos, which seems a little suspicious. Um, these videos and photos revered that clearly no one was following uh, COVID-19 restrictions. This led to an outcry in the LGBT community back here in the U.S., as well as in the uh, queer press, who condemned the events as being selfish and risky, not to mention against uh, government restrictions. Well, thank you everyone for listening to our first roundup of 2021. Thanks to Dr. Awai Romero for stopping by to speak about your work. Again, if you want to check out any of the articles that we've discussed today, just go to blog.lgbthealthlink.org where you will find this week's roundup and all of our past roundups, something to keep you busy until you can safely go to those circuit parties again. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week on our next edition.